Well, the Lord Jesus Christ gave some very, very clear instructions to his disciples during his earthly ministry. You see, during his earthly ministry, there were great crowds that were following the Lord Jesus Christ, following him throughout all of the the villages and the cities. And the Bible says that he was teaching in their synagogues and he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And, And as he was doing that, he was healing every disease and every affliction. In fact, as he looked in those crowds who were following him, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. This is why he told the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest. It's not coincidental that the very next thing that Matthew in his gospel records after that is the calling and the commissioning of the twelve. In light of that call, Jesus said this, You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. But reminding them, he said, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but who cannot kill the soul. Now that message must have really stuck with the Apostle Peter. In fact, in his first epistle, he's writing to scattered, suffering saints in Asia Minor. He says that they've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ in order to proclaim His excellencies in a world that is filled with lesser gods. And one of the ways that he tells them that God will be pleased to use in order for them to proclaim the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world is their suffering. The suffering that he's speaking of in this case, is specifically the suffering of persecution. And we began to talk about that a bit last week. In other words, we learned that when you and I as Christians suffer for righteousness, Peter says, we are not to fear. We're to have no fear of them. Last week, in fact, we learned that instead of fearing, we're to set Christ apart in our hearts. We are to be so devoted to Christ that instead of fearing We are to be honoring, we are to honor the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Or or I could say this way, why ought we not, why, why ought we not fear? Why ought we to set Christ apart in our hearts as holy? Why are we to be so devoted to Christ that we do not fear suffering? Well, I want you to think about what happens when you fear suffering for righteousness sakes. What happens when you fear suffering for righteousness' sake? That means denying Christ. Not unlike Peter denied Christ on that night when Jesus was betrayed. You remember when Peter stood there by the fire warming himself? And he denied the Lord Jesus Christ not one time, not two times, but three different times? Fearing suffering instead of being devoted to Christ, would mean, instead of proclaiming the supremacy of Christ, that we would rather live as if Jesus were just, you know, another one of the many worthy gods in this world. 
It would mean that instead of living a life of holiness, that we would give in to our fleshly lusts and, and we would cower to the wishes of others who make fun of us and mock us as Christians. These kinds of things, friends, can be the cause of this kind of fearing. Fearing being found out. Fearing standing out. Fearing of man's actions toward us or attitudes of us because we're Christians. We're going to find today as we continue our study through the book of 1 Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 that Peter is addressing why we must never fear suffering as Christians. Our text, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 18 through 22. And in this text, we're going to learn Three reasons, three reasons, kind of the big idea is this, three reasons why Christians must never fear suffering as a believer. Three reasons why Christians must never fear suffering as a believer. And what Peter does, as he has done throughout this letter, is he marvelously, gloriously, wondrously points to the Lord Jesus Christ as the example and motivation for the Christian in these dark days. In verses 18 through 20, he tells us the first reason that we're not to fear suffering. And that is, don't fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. Don't fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. And then in verse 21, he tells us, don't fear suffering because of Christ's resurrection. Don't fear suffering because of Christ's resurrection. And then in verse 22, we do not fear Christ because or we do not fear suffering because of Christ's glorification. He focuses in on Christ's crucifixion, Christ's resurrection and Christ's glorification. In other words, my prayer is that when you leave here today, you will leave here knowing why you should not fear suffering for righteousness sake, so that when the day comes when you will face mocking insult because you live for Christ, you will be prepared to face it. And that will perhaps lead someone else to ask of the reason for the hope that is in you. You know, when you're at work and you get mocked because you don't want to go out with the guys who are going out for a night of drinking, but instead you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Or maybe when your family looks at you with disdain because you've been trying to bring conversations around to the gospel at family events. Or maybe one day the day will come here when we will face threats, we as Christians will face threats of harm, imprisonment, fines, or other things because we refuse to bow the knee to the latest trendy God of this age. Of this age. Peter's giving us reasons not to fear. He's showing us how not to fear in the face of suffering. And he tells us in this text, let's read it. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Think of the Lord Jesus Christ as he was gathered with his disciples in that upper room on the night in which he was betrayed and he said how eagerly he had longed to eat that supper with them. And as I considered this text this morning, I I found myself with an eagerness to be able to to bring this text to you. There's so many thoughts in my head and and even emotions in my heart. And and I've been praying, God, keep keep me calm. Don't let me, just let me be under control, the control of the Spirit as I bring these things to you. And I want you so much to see these great truths, because I long for God to create in us a, a, a clean, a pliable heart that is useful in His sight. I, I long for God to make us bold, bold believers in this day for the glory of Christ. Would you pray with me to that end? Our Father, we have this glorious Word so so greatly desirous for you to work by the power of your Spirit in your Word this morning, through the Word and in your church. And so help everyone from the youngest to the oldest this morning have such an attentiveness to the Spirit, an unusual attentiveness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In verses 18 through 20, Peter says, don't fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. Don't fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. Now, what we have in this text is both wonderful and difficult at the same time. It it is almost unmatched in its beauty and its depth. I think it's kind of interesting that Peter said about the Apostle Paul. He said, you know, Paul has written some really hard things to understand in his epistles. And then we come to a section like this, and I want to tell you, it's not necessarily easy. But it does bring us to consider the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've got to tell you, friends, there is no person to whom we should be pointed today other than the Lord Jesus Christ. What Peter does in this text is he does the same thing that the writer, to the, letter of the, he- uh, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews does when he says, let's look to Jesus. What he wants is that the death of, the G- of Jesus Christ on the cross would become an example and motivation for us for honoring Christ as Lord in our hearts so that we can continue in righteousness without fear, even if it means suffering. And what he does in this little section, I'm talking about verses 18 through 20, is he emphasizes carefully and repeatedly the characteristics of Christ's suffering. In fact, I have found six characteristics that he points us to that would help us as we, as we behold, as we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, would help us not to fear suffering for the sake of righteousness. Let me show you these six characteristics. First of all, He points to this, the sacrificial nature of Christ's death. His death was sacrificial. Now, you notice in verse 18, the word for. For is a connecting word. It's a conjunction. It points us back to the previous section and reminds us that we neither should be fearful nor should we be surprised about suffering as a Christian. Why? 
Well, because Christ suffered. Christ also suffered once for sins. And I think the ESV actually should probably read, Christ also died once for sins. Because the suffering that Peter is actually talking about is the fact that Jesus died on the cross. The suffering which he faced was the suffering of death. The cruel, torturous death of crucifixion. But I want you to notice this. He says that that Christ died for our sins. That what, what Peter is doing is he is emphasizing the sacrificial, the sacrificial nature of the death of Christ. Christ was not dying for a political persuasion. He was not dying as a political revolutionary. He wasn't dying because of some mistakes or a few missteps along the way. He suffered for sins. And I want you to notice this. I want you to see it in the text. Sins in the plural, not in the singular. He's not talking about sin as if it were just a theory or as if there were just one sin every once in a while. He's talking about the the conglomeration of sins. Christ suffered for sins, plural. The actual breaking of God's law. And I was trying to think, What sins would he have in mind here? What are the sins for which Christ died? And I'm thinking, well, sins of lying and and adultery and and covetousness. I mean, just see. See if there's anything that hits you. Covetousness and, and envy, unthankfulness, worldliness, ungodliness, homosexuality, drunkenness, hypocrisy, pride, disobedience to parents, idolatry, lust, Blasphemy, taking the name of the Lord in vain, stealing, murder, slander, gossip, hatred, discontentment, anger, impatience, lack of self-control. When Jesus died, he died for sins. And he suffered death as a sinless sacrifice. He died for sins, though he was without sin. 1 Peter 2.22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. John 18.38, Pilate said to him, what is truth? And after this, he said, after he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. The writer of Hebrews said, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He went on to say, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Jesus Christ is the perfect, sinless sacrifice for sins. Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, said he is the Passover lamb. He was not dying for his own sins. That is repeated in this text over and again. What he wants us to see is that Christ's death was sacrificial. Do not fear suffering because of Christ's crucifixion. His death was a a sacrificial death. So, friends, I, I might put it this way. You and I can suffer for righteousness' sake without fear because He suffered for unrighteousness. That's why we, can fear, we, we don't have to fear suffering for righteousness. His death was sacrificial. That's the first characteristic. But 
But secondly, his death was unique. For Christ also suffered once. If you've ever taken Greek, maybe you've heard of the word hapax. Singularly. It means uh, without, it's not necessary to be repeated. It's of, of, of perpetual validity, not requiring repetition. That's what Peter emphasizes here. The death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a sacrifice for sins was unique and, and being unique was therefore utterly complete. In other words, it cannot be repeated. By the way, that fact alone is what led the, ref- the Protestant reformers away from the bondage of the Roman Catholic Church. Because why? Because Mass is celebrated as a bloodless sacrifice in which the Lord Jesus Christ is again and again offered for sin. But the Scripture is very clear. Jesus suffered once and only once. That is, once for all lifetime. Once for all time. There never has been and never will be another to die as a sacrifice for sins. Peter is emphasizing the finished and sufficient work of Christ on the cross, which satisfied God's righteous judgment on behalf of those he came to save. So I can say, I can face suffering for righteousness without fear, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the perfect and final sacrifice for my sins. There will never be another. I don't have to fear that somehow someone is going to uh, come along, someone else is going to come along and have to add something that was missing in order to be the sacrifice for my sins. It's already been made. I can live full out for the Lord Jesus Christ because there is nothing else to add. Think of the crucifixion of Christ. Think of the sacrificial nature of his death. Think of the unique nature of his death. His death was sacrificial. His death was unique. Number three, his death was substitutionary. The substitutionary nature of his death. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Then look at this. The righteous for the unrighteous. Just a note here. Grammatical note. Righteous is singular. Unrighteous is what? Plural. One and only one is righteous. Many are unrighteous. There's only one who is righteous. There are many who are unrighteous. I I suppose there's no other place in Scripture that so clearly and wonderfully uh, uh, proclaims this other than 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ is a substitutionary sacrifice. The righteous one died on behalf of the unrighteous ones. There was a missionary in a tribal region who was speaking in this remote tribe of people who had never heard about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he had carefully brought them through to help them understand the the, the necessity of of the Lord Jesus Christ. And and they're seated in the front row, listening intently to everything that the missionary said was the chief of that tribe. And as time went on, the the, the story of Jesus came to its climax. And the, the, the chief heard that day how Christ was cruelly treated and cruelly crucified. And finally, he could restrain himself no longer. He jumped up from the front row and said, stop it. Take him down from the cross because I belong there, not him. And I'm praying that God would allow us to respond similarly today. 
I want us all to be able to see, to understand deeply that we deserve that punishment. And I'm not just talking about the physical punishment of the cross. I am talking about the spiritual penalty, the wrath of God that was being satisfied that day by Christ. It was for you. It was for me. He died on our behalf. And and Peter wants to press this truth on our hearts. He wants to press this truth on our minds that Jesus Christ took our place and paid the full penalty of sin. The the penalty that you and I owe. Someone said that Jesus Christ paid a debt he did not owe to satisfy a debt I could not pay. I think what God means for us to understand is that the Lord Jesus Christ died on behalf of the unrighteous. And it is that to which God uses is it's that truth that that God uses to bring those very unrighteous ones to himself the suffering of Jesus Christ friends is a redemptive suffering and and in a way not completely like Christ but in a way when we suffer our suffering has a, a redemptive nature In other words, God may use that suffering not to pay for their sins, but God may use that suffering to bring His own elect to Himself. So I'd ask a question. Are you willing to face the mocking and insults of a watching world? Would you do that? There's there's the fact that, that this is to be tremendously motivating for us. It is motivating for me to consider that Christ died for my sins once, even though He never sinned. He blazed the trail, so to speak, so that I might follow Him, so that you might follow Him. So that even if you and I, even if God should will, that you and I would suffer for righteousness' sake. Listen, there is nothing that, and no one that can ultimately harm me. Why? Because the ultimate price has already been placed, paid in our place. So what do we do? We sing. We sing in proclamation of His excellency. That's what this is about. He's giving you motivation to, to, to tell the world of the excellencies of Jesus, the far exceeding superiority, the supremacy of Jesus, to tell the world of what he's done. We can live in such a way that announces his glory among the nations. We're looking at the, 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 the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus. His death was sacrificial. His death was unique. His death was substitutionary. Number four, his death was purposeful. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That phrase describes being introduced to someone, to being given, given access to someone. Jesus died in order to reconcile us to God so that we would no longer be his enemy, but rather, not just so that we wouldn't be his enemy, but rather that we could be a welcomed part of his family, a well-pleasing part of the family of God. Christ died on purpose. He didn't die by accident and he didn't die on a whim. His death actually accomplished something. He died in order to bring us, who are us, believers, to God. 
He will only bring believers to God. If you're not a believer, you will have no well-pleasing welcome in the presence of God. Why? Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, I want you to remember, Peter is telling us why Christ should be set apart in our hearts. Why we should be devoted to the lordship of Jesus Christ and not be in fear, not cower when we're faced with suffering as a Christian. I believe this morning that he is calling me and he is calling you to redouble our efforts in the Christian life as he focuses our attention on all that the Lord Jesus Christ has done, all that he has gloriously and triumphantly accomplished. I think about this and I think, is any price too great? Is any suffering somehow out of bounds when I think about the Lord Jesus Christ facing the cruel cross and how he stood in in place of the unfathomable, eternal wrath of God for my sin and your sin so that he might welcome me and you as a child of God, you and I who were children of hell, you and I who were objects of his wrath, now think of this welcomed, well-pleasing sons and daughters In a little while, we're going to be able to sing a a wonderful song, and I'm looking forward to hearing you sing that and singing it together with you. We'll sing, what a day that will be, when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace, and he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day, what a glorious day that will be. And I love that song. But I don't love it as much as I could. <laughs> because I wish that song somehow reflected more of what Peter is saying here. What I mean is this the focus of a Christian is not the promised land, the focus of the Christian is Christ. The glory of being a Christian is not being taken throughout heaven. It's a glorious thing. But the far more glorious thing is the one who takes me by his by, by my hand. It's him. It's, it's him. I well remember standing by the bedside of a dear uh, dying saint and the body, her body racked in pain and, and we're standing there and the family's gathered around and we've been singing and then somebody says, it's okay, mom, go ahead, go to daddy, daddy's waiting for you. And as glorious a thought as that is, I had to set up, step up and say, but there's someone even more grand and someone even more great who's waiting for you and his name is Jesus. His death was sacrificial. His death was unique. His death was substitutionary. His death was purposeful to bring us, to introduce us, to reconcile us to God, to bring us into an intimate relationship with God wherein we could be not just welcomed, but well-pleasing members of His family. Number five, His death was literal. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Look at this. Being put to death in the flesh. 
I'm not going to spend much time here, but neither do I want to pass over this without at least noticing what Peter says. Though some downplay the reality of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, his literal bodily death is a gospel fact. He was put to death in the flesh. This highlights a number of things. It highlights the fact that he was real flesh and blood. It highlights the fact that he took on flesh and blood. He died that day. He did not swoon. He didn't fake it. He didn't go out of consciousness. When the Roman soldiers came to him, they would have broken his legs, but they found him already what? Dead. His side was pierced in order to fulfill the Scriptures. You need to know and believe today that Jesus was really put to death in the flesh. And we've been going deep in this text but there is still more depth for which, to which we must go. And I'm not sure that any of us can hold our theological breath long enough to take all of this in, but let's try. Jesus' death was a sacrificial death, a unique death, a substitutionary death, a purposeful death, and a literal death. And everything really in this text points to this last characteristic, the sixth characteristic. And that is that his death was triumphant. His death was triumphant, friends. I said, we've plumbed the depths of this glorious truth about the death of our Lord, but there's still further for us to go. We're coming now to a section that may prove too great for us. It's wondrous. It's unfathomable. It has been the contemplation of my heart. I told you yesterday, I... I was standing there with 110,000 people watching that football game. It wasn't much to see. And all I could think about, I'm, not, I'm telling you the truth, I stood there thinking, Jesus died for me. Over the years, the text that we come to, the end of verse 18 and in verses 19 and 20, has been the subject of much pondering amongst Christians. Many, many different interpretive thoughts about this text. And, and it is indeed difficult, but this morning I, I just want to, to, to do what I can to help you see a little bit of the sublime portrait that has been painted for us by the Holy Spirit. Notice what he said. He was put to death in the flesh, but now look, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. His body was dead. But his spirit made alive. I think this is referring to the fact that he suffered the reality of spiritual death. Almost too much for me to to take in. And, And I think we have to use great care here. But Peter is not talking about his physical or bodily resurrection. If he were, he would use different words for that. On the cross, Jesus experienced a kind of spiritual death when he took on himself the fullness of the wrath of God in the place of guilty sinners, which is reflected in his words, not my Father, but my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 19 says, verse 18 says, but, but made alive in the Spirit, and then verse 19, 
in which, in which, in what? In His made alive Spirit. In His living Spirit. While His physical body was dead in the tomb. Peter wants us to to understand something. While His physical body was in the tomb, His made alive Spirit. What did He do in His made alive Spirit? He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. He went to the prison of the spirits. This is almost too much. Where is that? Well, you'll find it helpful to understand that the word spirits here is almost always used to refer to angelic spirits. He's talking here about fallen angelic spirits. We would call them demons. He's been talking about demonic spirits who have been in prison. The prison is called, in another place of Scripture, the bottomless pit. It's called like that in the book of Revelation. It is to this place that God has chosen to confine some demon spirits. Look with me at 2 Peter chapter 2 for a moment. And I know that I'm only on point number one. Don't worry, we're only going to finish with this today. All right, The turkey's not going to get cold. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Look at this. I want you to see this. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed their chains to them, the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, but cast them into, and then it's translated as hell, the word that Peter uses here, the word Peter uses is the, the word Tartarus. It's a name that's used in Greek literature for the place that is reserved for the worst of the worst. Other times in the New Testament, we read of this place called the abyss. Luke chapter 8 tells us that the demons themselves fear this place, the the bottomless pit, the, the, the abyss. Now the Scriptures teach that demons have been confined to this place, back to 1 Peter now, chapter 3, have been confined to this place since the days of Noah. Now, I believe that that refers to Genesis 6, and the specific incidence there is when demonic spirits cohabitated with human women, which was, in fact, an attempt by Satan to destroy Genesis 3, the, the Genesis 3 seed promise of God. These demon spirits actually possessed men. They inhabited men. That's referred to back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 2. And so what you had is this particularly vile group of demons who were lusting after the daughters of men. And what did they do? Jude tells us in Jude 6, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under glooming darkness until the judgment of the great day. Now you have to ask yourself a question. What's happening back in Genesis chapter 6? What is happening back in Genesis chapter 6 is that these demons have the desire to go after the daughters of men. But we know that angels and demons are not capable of sexual activity. So what did they do? Jude says they left their proper dwelling. That is to say they took up residence in men. They possessed men. And then they took as their wives any they chose. If you go back and look at Genesis chapter 6, you will find a very descriptive uh, description of the moral condition of the times. But it gets even worse. 
because these demon-inhabited men had their choice of women that they wanted, the women were equally wicked and and easily and quickly and freely gave up their bodies for sexual activity with these demon-possessed men. And guess what? Children were born. And I'm not talking about some kind of half-man, half-angel. That's not what we're talking about at all. These are only men who were born, nothing more than that. And that's emphasized in the text. But what you've got to hear is a bunch of children being born to demon-possessed and demon-controlled parents in demon-controlled homes. Ungodly men who sold their souls to the devil, leading families and producing children. And the evil is coming to a, a, a boiling point. It is bad stuff, folks. It was a terrible, terrible time. And I think we're getting, by the way, I think we're getting to that point again in our world today. And that is what led up to the judgment of God in the worldwide flood. And in the worldwide flood, those men died. And the demons who were inhabiting them were confined to this prison, this abyss, this bottomless pit, chained with eternal chains, kept under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. It was to this place that these particularly vile spirits were sent as a result of the flood. I said they died. The men died they, because they were inhabiting those men. Their spirit, they, these demon spirits are sent until the day when they are sent to the eternal lake of fire. If you ask, you say, well, are these the demons who will be released at the fifth trumpet judgment? No, I don't think so. I think these particular demons that he's talking about here are those who are kept in eternal chains. That's why Peter is very clear here that he's referring to those during the days of Noah. They're the ones, the specific ones. According to Jude, again, they're kept in eternal bonds. So what happens? In his made-alive spirit, Jesus goes to proclaim, not evangelize. He's not going to evangelize. He's going to proclaim his triumph. His victory to these demon spirits. These particularly vile and wicked demon spirits intent on destroying the promise of God. They're filled with vile hatred even in that place of torment. Even in the, in the abyss. And what Peter says here, I believe, is having been made alive in his spirit after suffered, suffering spiritual death, Christ went to that place called the abyss, maybe to just the doorway, if you will, in order to proclaim his triumph over them, in order to tell them, listen, you wanted to destroy and you wanted to distort the eternal covenant promise of God. You wanted to destroy the seed promise. Well, guess what? Here I am. You did not succeed. I want you to go with me to Colossians chapter 2. So I think Paul is talking about this same thing in Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 8 through 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. And in the context that I just gave to you, consider what Paul says here. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. 
And you have been filled in him who is the head and rule and authority in him. Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, listen, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's what Peter's talking about. No human, no demon can do anything to affect the eternal salvation that is provided in the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't fear suffering. There's nothing that anyone can ever do that will take away what the Lord Jesus Christ has purchased for his children. Praise the Lord. Don't fear suffering because of the crucifixion of Christ. We've seen the sacrificial nature of his death, the unique nature of his death, the substitutionary nature of his death, the purposeful nature of his death, the literal nature of his death, and the triumphant nature of his death. Brothers and sisters, when you suffer according to God's will, That suffering is not wasted. It's not a waste. John MacArthur said this, the simple point then is that you may suffer unjustly. You may suffer in the severest way, even to the point where you lose your life. But in it all, God can provide victory. He can provide triumph. He can provide the accomplishment of a holy purpose. I read this week as I I considered how do I want our people to leave today. I read this week of a pastor who said something like this. He said, in one sense, I hope you go away from this chapter as if the great missionary Adoniram Judson's words, last words on earth were this. He said, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. Oh, that God would enable us to leave this place today bounding like schoolboys, Thankful to be released from that prison of school. Kicking up their heels and rejoicing. Feeling so strong in Christ. I've said it once, I'll say it again. Feeling as if we can ready to charge hell with a water pistol. If your friends begin to laugh at you because you refuse to live in the same kinds of sin out of which you were saved, will you fear them? If you find that your boss demands that you misappropriate funds or risk losing your job, we fear. If your church begins to cave to the sexual ethics of the world and ostracizes you because you're not willing to be silent about sin, will you fear? If your neighbors begin to exclude your children because you believe the Bible, will you fear? 
If your government tells you that your attempts to witness for Christ is actually hate speech punishable by fines and imprisonment, will you fear? If your bank explains that you can no longer support the work of ministry with the funds in your checking account, will you fear? Isaac Watts has been rightly called the father of English hymnody. This morning I closed with one hymn written by Watts that was based on Galatians 6.14, which says this, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that familiar hymn, some of the lines say this, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, he said, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my Lord, all the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them for his blood. But out of all of the lines of that song, this last one sticks in my mind. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that'd be a present far too small. Love so amazing. What do you mean, so amazing? What love so amazing? A love that would sacrifice for you a a sacrificial death, a unique death, a substitutionary death, a purposeful death, a literal death, a triumphant death, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. That kind of love so amazing, so divine, what? Demands my soul, my life, and my all. He'll have all of you or nothing. Let's pray.